Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. Your on-the-go bite of the food and beverage industry. Welcome to the Food and Drink Business Podcast. My name's Grant McCarran, and today I'm once again joined by Kim Berry, the editor of Food and Drink Business and the host of this show. G'day, Kim. How are you doing? I am very well, Grant. And yourself? Not too bad. Thanks for asking. And of interest, I believe we have someone coming back who clearly didn't learn the first time (laughs) and is willing to come back on the show. I know. I know. Are they called a repeat offender or a friend of the podcast? I, I think friend of the, po- friend podcast, of the podcast is a much better approach, yeah, <laughs> but uh, clear, clearly there's so much more to talk about that we couldn't get it all into one episode and they're back for more. That is absolutely correct. And uh, those who do tune in regularly to the podcast will know that the last time we spoke to this guest, I was at sometimes rendered speechless. So that really tells says it all, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, totally. That no. was just mind-blowing. So, we're joined today by global futurist Tony Hunter. Tony shared with us last year his concept of exponential growth or the exponential of food, and we're looking at uh, just the mind-blowing infor- um, innovations and production methods that we're now seeing in, the food, and bev- in food and beverage manufacturing. Uh, so, today, we're checking back in. We're seeing what's going to be uh, what's flying along and is going to really sort of hit, hit its stride or really going to take uh, centre stage this year and beyond. Hi, Tony. Hi, Kim. Hi, uh, Grant. How Welcome are you? back. <laughs> Thank you. The repeat offender strikes again. Yes. <laughs> great yes. to have you back. <laughs> no, it's great to have you back. Um, and I think we even discussed it last time that this, uh, the future of food and, and this uh, is so quick and moves so fast that we could really almost do this on a weekly basis and, and there would be, as you talk about, exponential growth in in the areas that we're seeing um, investment and developments in. Uh, So, where do we begin today? Well, I think you're right, Kim. I mean, as I I look back and every time um, I look back and go, yes, I reckon I I, I had it then, I had seen the technologies, I open up another newsletter or I do some more research and there's something else new that I'd never heard of before. So, things change at such rapid rate, as you say, that's why I came up with that that exponential concept, which is where food is now technology. There is so much technology coming into the food industry from not only within the industry, which, which you sort of expect, but we're seeing it from the medical industry, we're seeing it from AI, we're seeing it from all sorts of areas coming in and dramatically affecting food and food technology. And as we know, technology advances exponentially. So that's why I've coined my exponential, technology changing exponentially. And if you, if I miss out on a week or twos of, of data somehow, um, I am just so far behind, it's not funny. There is so much new going on and um, it's slowed up a little bit over uh, Christmas, New Year, but it's powering along now, believe me. I almost also feel that the pandemic in a way has worked for this, for those working in this space because uh, it's given them, it's almost given them room to really just drive and to keep moving and to really focus on what they're doing without the distractions of uh, more conventional, uh, you know, production methods that they've also had to work on at the same time. Uh, So, uh, 
We actually recently spoke to the one of the co-founders of Vow, which is Australia's one of Australia's first and leading cultured meat companies, uh, Tim Noakesmith. And we were talking about this notion of technology and food and that consumers are actually becoming much more comfortable with it as a concept. Is that something that you're seeing in, in the work that you're doing? Yes, certainly. I think consumers, particularly the younger consumers, are realising that there is technology in food. And in general, there's far more technology has been in food than the vast number of consumers are, are aware of. And I think one really interesting area is in um, gene editing, genetic modification of crops and, and animals. And I can understand people have you know, some philosophical uh, objections to these, these things. But what they don't seem to realise is that genetic modification and genetic manipulation and editing has been going on for decades. And that actually, people think that all breeding is done by throwing some seeds out into a field, picking the ones you want, the biggest ones, and crossing that with the other one. Well, actually, there are thousands of food crops on the market that were produced via gamma irradiation and mutagenic chemicals. If you've eaten Calrose rice in Australia, its parent was produced by gamma irradiation of the rice seeds. Right. And we've been calmly eating that. If you eat red grapefruit in Texas, gamma irradiated to produce the red colour. And so we've been using mutagenic techniques, random mutagenesis, for a long, long time. And things like CRISPR and other um, of these genetic editing technologies are actually far more precise. And it's really interesting that in the US, you can use mutagenesis, traditional, they call it traditional plant breeding, and you can still call it organic. Uh -huh. but you can't use CRISPR right. and call it organic. And in Europe, you can use all the mutagenic stuff you like, but you can't use CRISPR because that's genetically modified. But you can use traditional plant breeding, which is, you know, um, using uh, mutagenic chemicals and gamma radiation with impunity. Um, and because the interesting is where this came from is after the after World War II and the, the tragedies in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, people wanted to show, particularly the US, there was peaceful uses of nuclear energy. So they publicised, look, we can nuclear, we can irradiate seeds and make wonderful new products. They sold products on the shelf in seed packets with a nuclear explosion, the, the mushroom cloud on it, to promote. Can you imagine promoting that today? <laughs> The more thing, you know, this is, it's such the cyclical nature of things, isn't it? That we really do, it's in everything. It's in, it's in child rearing. It's in, you know, whether women and, uh, you know, pregnancies and breastfeeding and, you know, it always goes in a big circle around, you know, oh, you must do this or, oh, that's really bad. And then you come full circle. And I think, would it be fair to say that at this point in uh, the global population and the state the climate crisis, that that we're almost having to bring ourselves psychologically back to a place where looking at technology and food, we're going to have to make our peace with it if we actually want to have a globe where everyone is getting fed and we are not going to end up on a planet that's, you know, essentially just one cataclysmic climate event after another. Yeah, look, I think you're absolutely right there, Kim. I think the, the thing is, where we're talking, if we get to the 10 billion 
um, that the uh, UN are talking about, or even the 9 billion other people are saying it won't get to 10, we're going to need 70 to 100% increase in things like protein and other crops. And we cannot simply just take what we do now and scale it up. Or we can, but we're going to basically raise the surface of the planet to in order to get enough crops and animal um, grazing areas. And there's not enough arable land or fresh water on the planet to keep doing things like we're doing it and sustainably and equitably feed other people. And going back to a comment you made before, I think that's one of the things that COVID has shown us. I mean, we had to, when COVID came along and we had that massive change between food service and retail, millions and millions of litres of milk were literally poured down drains, crops were ploughed under and animals were slaughtered and then buried because there was no market for them. They opened the abattoirs to slaughter them and bury them. And the current system has works really, really well when everything works well one after the other. When it doesn't, when you have these disruptions, its ability to react is actually not nearly as, as good as we might need. And that's where some of these new technologies can come in and they can react a lot faster because their cycle times are a lot, slight, lot faster. So therefore, they can actually react to changes in the marketplace and major changes like, like COVID and so on much more, more rapidly. And um, just to put in a plug here, I just uh, edit, uh, authored a chapter in a book called Aftershocks and Opportunities, The Five Technologies Shaping the Post-Pandemic Future of Food. And in that, I sort of go into this bit about, you know, what the pandemic has shown us about our food system and how really unfit for purpose it is going to become as we get further and further along 10, 20, 30 years out. That as you say, Kim, we need to fundamentally rethink what we find is acceptable. We need people to acknowledge the technologies that are used and people need to become aware of those technologies. And the reason often they're not is they're not asked about it because it's business to business. So one business invents a new way of doing it, sells it to the other business who doesn't need to declare it for whatever reason, and then sells it to the consumer. So the consumer doesn't need to know. And that's, I think we've talked before last time about um, rennet and chymosin and making that through synthetic biology. And I think I might have said that's why I find the Impossible Burger the most fascinating product released for decades. Because if I said to you as a, listen, Grant, Kim, we've got some money, we've got a few million each spare to spend, Jeff Bezos just sent us a check. Um, and that, you know, I'll buy a studio apartment in Sydney, thanks. <laughs> and, in a basement. And, 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 and I said, look, I've got this great idea, right? I'm going to use genetically modified soy protein. I'm going to genetically engineer some yeast to make this blood-like stuff. I'm going to mix them together set up a company and sell this. Would you guys put your million dollars into that? You'd look at me like I was nuts. That's exactly what Impossible Foods have done. They have asked consumers, told them, we use genetically modified soy, we genetically engineer our yeast, and we put it in the product, and we're telling you that on our website and giving you the choice of whether to buy it or not. And people are buying as many as they can make. A fascinating the acceptance of technology there. And the consumers are multifactorial. They don't just look, oh, it's not whole food, cross it off. Well, it's not whole food, but it's plant-based. 
I don't think Burger King, uh, Hungry Jacks as they are over here, but Burger King in the US would want to kill me, has downside for their business, they kill their consumers, um, and they weigh it up and they go, on balance, I'm going to buy this. And I, that's what I find that's such a deeply fascinating product um, you know, to, to look at how that's successful that's been despite what most people would, would call it, you know, it's struck out. It would never, never happen. Yeah. Well, you know, if we're, after your little plug for the the um, chapter that you've uh, written in that book, I'll give uh, another little plug for our magazine because we have an excerpt of that chapter of yours coming out in our January-February issue. And uh, But I also have an interview in that issue with the Senior Vice President of the International Business for Impossible Foods, Nick Haller, and that's in that, that's coming out in that issue as well. And it's really, uh, you know, it's it's so interesting to sort of see, you know, this company started started out, and it's it's not that old. Like it only it only started in, gosh, um, two thousand eleven, I think it was. Yeah. yeah, and it's now valued at it's now valued at around seven billion dollars. And all that has happened in the last two to three years. It's that exponential change. I went to the US in twenty eighteen. I spoke to their head of research, and her complaint was no one wanted to do anything for them. They couldn't get people to react fast enough. They couldn't get samples. They couldn't get things done. That's September 2018. So three years on, they've gone from zero, hit the inflection point, up the exponential curve, and as you say, $7 billion. US dollars, real dollars, as they say. Well, that's right. So they've raised, they've now raised uh, close to $2 billion since they launched in 2011. And their last raise was in November and they raised 500 million. <laughs> so it's, it is such a fascinating space, as you were just saying, because it's plant based. So in your head, you naturally go to thinking vegan, you go to thinking organic, you go to thinking, um, you know, people that are going to shy away from anything that hasn't been, you know, tilled by the bare hands of someone out there wearing flax linen and a, you know, straw hat and churning their butter in the mornings for their, you know, sourdough that's been proofing overnight. When in fact, it's so far removed from that. The sort of, not religion, but it's almost the religion behind it in terms of the caring for the planet and the putting nutrients into your body. They're the same. And so, okay, so if we're sort of looking at that, what are we seeing in that space then in terms of we're really seeing plant-based, you know, meat and that whole sector, alternate milks, that's just, you know, alternative milks, that's just almost rolling, you know, it's just off on its own journey now. It's got its momentum. It's... We're going to just see flavours improving. We're going to see more people coming into the market, though some falling out, product iterations becoming better and better. So what's now sitting around that that's starting to find its pace or starting to gain its momentum? I think if you say look at the plant-based side of things, you're absolutely right there, Kim. It's on the curve. Costs, the two big things that stop people from buying the product or repeat purchase is price and taste. Price parity, um, we're looking around about 2023. I think I've said before, taste parity, maybe 2025. Massive amounts of resources coming in from flavour companies and flavour houses. And that's, to me, that's almost a foregone conclusion. That is what's, that is what's going to happen. 
But um, what we've seen recently is with the um, failure of some of the pea crops around the world, the price of pea protein is going through the roof. And so what we're seeing there is that there are still things that can um, impact the price parity side of things for plant-based. So they need some more alternatives for their raw materials. And here it's not actually plant-based. The big move is going to be mycoprotein. Mycoprotein is where it's grown by fungi. And anyone who's familiar with the corn product, Q-U-R-N product out of the UK, that's a my original mycoprotein product. And you can actually grow this stuff really, really quickly. You can actually go, so if you came to me and said, uh, Tony, I'd like a cow's worth of mycoprotein. I'd say, come back in two days. I'll have a cow's worth for you and I'll cut into the shape of a cow and stick it in the back of your truck for you. No problems. So these people can produce thousands of cow equivalents per day. And there's a few of these companies, one company called Enough out of the, the UK, and they're scaling up to make massive amounts. Another one is Nature's Find, F-Y-N-D, and these guys are scaling up their mycoprotein, their fungal um, production processes to make massive amounts of alternative protein. And they're very, very good quality proteins too in terms of their amino acid profiles and bioavailability um, of the uh, the protein and the amino acids in the, in their products, so that is going to be the real mover. We've seen probably half a billion, up to a billion dollars in the last say six or eight months go into the mycoprotein space. Tony, is this something that's um, how do they how does this get produced? Is it is it something that's being done in vats, like say Provectus is doing with its algae sort of program up in Queensland, or what how, what's happening? How does it work? Um, two slightly different things there, Kim. One we're talking about here is making protein. The Prevectus guys are primarily making high-value ingredients, not necessarily growing it for the protein. So they're using algae, and they vary the wavelength of light to stimulate different reactions within the algae to make the products that they want. Whereas what we're looking at is the biomass itself, the big mass of filamentous fungi all in there. And we grow those in huge bioreactors, huge fermenters, and then harvest that from the fermenters and then structure that. And you can use that to make alternative protein products. And that's how we got here was plant-based needs some more alternative proteins to go in them. So these products will go into plant-based or supplement plant-based products. We're already seeing Unilever, the huge uh, global food company in their vegetarian butcher, they're using some of the mycoprotein in their products already in, in Europe. And that is going to be a massive growth here because you don't need land. You don't need much land. You don't need much fresh water. You can recycle a lot of it. So mycoprotein is the one we're going to hear more and more and more of in 2022, I think, Plant-based is now almost so established that there's not many people you talk to that haven't heard of plant-based. I mean, it's yeah, plant yeah. And so, is this microprotein? Is this something that would become another? Um, it, it, is it just an in, is it just an ingredient, or are you going to get product? With, is it going? Is it like a soy protein that then will go into a burger, or will go into a um, or like any form of sort of, you know, alternative meat or yes. how does it? Yeah, that's right. right. Basically, it's an ingredient. So it's a protein ingredient. So you might use soy as your protein ingredient or pea as your protein ingredient. You'll use mycoprotein as your protein ingredient, either in combination with other ingredients to balance up the amino acid profile or the texture that you want or things like that. And then you'll use that 
and that will make your final product. They say everything from burgers to there's there's a company in the um, US called the Better Meat Co, and they are making whole cut steaks out of mycoprotein there. So that's that's where they're coming in. Another company called Meaty, M-E-A-T-I. They're also looking at whole cut products. So we're looking at whole cut mycoprotein steaks. So that's coming along and that's helping to drive the next iteration of plant-based, which is how do we get whole muscle products? That's the other thing we're going to come, come to see as a company called Redefine Meat out of Israel. And they are serving up um, their um 3D printed plant-based steaks in uh, top-notch restaurants in London, uh, Mr. White's, Pierre Marco White's restaurant, and treating it like he would a normal meat product, it, changing it slightly, but he's adapted his processes there to use this. So he's got plant-based steaks, beef products and lamb products on, on his menu, and Redefine Meat have done some research, and they reckon that their product falls at least 95% of all consumers that they've tried it on now you, you you've got to go yeah they're going to say that is there yeah. but, but <laughs> let's say it only fools 50 percent of people they say it's only half right if you can fool 50 percent of the population into eating that product and they can't tell the difference then i don't think there's any reason to go oh write them off i say to someone so you're only going to lose 50 percent of your customers and you're happy <laughs> and, it can, and it's mistakes. The big advantage with stakes is your price barrier is a hell of a lot higher. I went into Woolworths the other day, uh, 40 bucks, 39.90 a kilo for a Scotch fillet steak. So burgers, what are we looking at? 12, 15 bucks? Now, if you can make a 3D printed or a, a whole muscle steak product and sell it for 30 bucks a kilo, you, you can afford a lot higher cost of production compared to people trying to compete with burgers, and you're still 25% under your competitor animal agriculture product. That's, what, that's a big move to do. And do you think um, it will reach a point where, because I know this is one of the ongoing arguments, you know, about plant-based meat being called meat, and that, you know, this notion that it, it, it's to create something that there's a familiarity for consumers to then encourage them to try it and then they know what it is and, you know. And this is really the same thing, isn't it? Because ultimately they're not wanting to they're not wanting to fool or trick people into eating these things. It's just a mechanism of showing this is this is what it, this is what it is, you know. So you don't actually have to scoff at it or be scared of it. It's such an interesting. The whole, I mean, the technology is the is obviously the fascinating sort of thing we're talking about here. But the flip side of that then is also the consumer behaviour and and attitudes that you're then putting in on top of that is, you know, I mean, it can't be ignored, and um, it's a really interesting thing to watch. Yeah, and I think the thing is, as you say, Kim, I, I call it an anchor point. If I put a lump of something in front of you and say, there you go, you know, go, go cook and eat that or go and eat that, you go, well, do I cook it? Yeah. Um, do I, How do, do I cook do, it? How do I do serve I do it? Is it, it breakfast? Is it lunch? Yeah. Is it dinner? Is it a snack? If I say there's a burger, straight away, oh, barbecue, between, between two bits of bread, I can put some lettuce on it, tomato, I know exactly what to do with it. And I, I can understand the animal agriculture guys, um, particularly the beef industry, I was speaking to someone in that industry the other day, and they said they, they saw this as identity theft. And I can really understand the 
you know, the the visceral feeling. They've been in this industry for decades, the generations on the land and so on. But the thing that I would say to, to people who are worried about the, firstly, there's two big areas that people seem to believe are, if you like, the battleground. One is labelling and the other one is it's the vegans versus the carnivores. Well, you know, I think that I say if you fight that those on those two battlegrounds, you are fighting the wrong battle. The battle is in technology. The best technology will win. I mean, how's your VHS tape collection going recently? Watched a lot of good <laughs> VHS tapes. Well, e- even DVDs. How many DVDs did you buy last year? Well, and I think you're really on something here, and this is something that we were really working on it on you know on food and drink business last year. Is once you try and pit this into an us and them. Like no, no one wins. And yet, and the other thing it does is it distracts from the actual remarkable work that is being done in the traditional slash conventional, you know, animal meat industries. The, some of the projects and the work that's being done in that space in terms of making the industry more sustainable is remarkable. And that's getting lost in the wash of this argument about, you know, they're calling it meat. And I'm I'm with you. I kind of get it. Um, Well, no, I do get it. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. And I think that they're going to get left behind if they try and stay on that trajectory. Now, we've only got a couple more minutes. Um, Give me a couple of like quick uh, bullet points about other things that you think are... uh, that we need to watch, and then we shall we shall regroup and have another chat in a couple of months. Okay, the ne- next one: plant molecular farming. That is going to be a big mover in twenty twenty two. Now, plant molecular farming is where you take the gene, give an actual instance, the gene for casein from a cow, yes, put it into yes. a soybean, grow mm. the soybeans, take the casein out, and use it to make cheese. A company called Nobel Foods in the US has raised to date a hundred million dollars. They're planting crops now, and we'll have that on the marketplace in 2022, plant molecular <laughs> farming. So that's coming. Oh, wow. Okay. Yep. Okay. Mm-hmm. And the next one I think which we touched on, which is really um, getting some, some traction now, is the one where you take stem cells from, say, a cow's milk, and then you grow those stem cells into mammary glands in bioreactors and make milk. And you can make human milk out of that. So human milk side of things, that's really um, taking off and that's its early stages. But again, we're talking 10, 20 years out. We're not talking about this disrupting the market in years' time. We're talking decades (laughs) out here. The other big one that's really changing the food industry technologically, uh, everybody talks about AI, but it's, it's big, it's AI of this. And I'm saying, no, AI for product formulation is absolutely massive. You look at a lot of the alternative protein products around alternative milks, alternative meat products, they are being formulated by AI and machine learning. So there's a, one of the milks, I think it's put out by Notco, it has some pineapple in it to mimic the taste of milk. Right? So they are taking thousands of ingredients, saying to the AI, we want it to taste like milk. You tell us, AI, what should be in there to make it taste like milk? And the AI comes along and produce a whole load of formulas. You then tell it which ones it got closest to. It iterates again, learns, and it gives you another go. So we're going to see a massive amount of AI being used um, in the food industry 
uh, to generate alternatives to what we've currently, um, the current products that we're using, and do that very, very quickly again and exponentially. What this is, this is a convergence of exponential technologies is what we're seeing. Exponential technologies in AI, cellular agriculture, our friends making the from Val making this cultivated meat. We're seeing all these technologies come together to drive food production and change in the food industry in a way we have never seen before. And there's that saying, change will never be slower than it is today. Well, it's exactly <laughs> so true. Yet again, another rollicking half hour. Uh, Tony, thank you so much. We Absolutely. Well, I know that I love having a chat with you. It's energizing and insightful and it just makes the future seem just so exciting. Uh, so, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge with us once again. Uh, Grant, what do you think about that? <laughs> well, uh, as I think I said last time, what more can I say than my sci-fi of my past is now my present and my future. Yeah. And it's just an amazing time to be alive and watching what we're doing and all the things that are coming along. So as ever, I really enjoy sitting in and listening to these discussions. So Tony, just amazing and what we're doing, where we're at and where we will be. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Kim. Thanks for having me on. Thanks, Grant. And look forward to talking to you again in the next couple of months and uh, seeing just what's changed by then. I'm sure it'll be a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode. Don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, and I'm sure you would have, you can tell a colleague about it so they too can be amazed like we are and have the benefits of uh, enjoying these great shows. We'll be back in the not-too-distant future with another informative episode, but until then, have a great day. You've been listening to the Food and Drink Business Podcast, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Food and Drink Business, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Food and Drink Business, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via our website or send an email to editor at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's food and beverage industry at foodanddrinkbusiness.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.